Hello everyone, um, welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to do a um, kind of a book review <clears throat> over um, the book called Naming Jack the Ripper um, by Russell Edwards. Um, it came to light in 2014 uh, based on an argument surrounding mtDNA and a bloody shawl that supposedly links uh, one of the suspects we at the time that, that was on a list of over 300 names um, to uh, one of the Ripper victims. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of a rundown in respect to uh, the premise of this and one of the issues surrounding uh, this actual book or the presentation of the evidence in said book. Okay, so... For those who aren't aware, uh, Jack the Ripper, he was a killer or killers, still unknown, um, that was haunting and preying upon uh, women in the Whitechapel District of London between 1888 and 1891. Uh, big question mark after 1891 because um, criminologists and historians have not been able to connect all 11 killings consecutively uh, to five of the actual known victims who were murdered in 1888. So in other words, we're really unsure how many actual victims um, Jack the Ripper or Jack the Rippers were responsible for. But what we do know from a criminal investigative standpoint about this particular case is that the initial five victims were Marianne Nichols, Anne Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. Uh, they were murdered uh, between the 31st of August to the 9th of November in 1888. Um, the reason why we say definitively the five are connected to potentially the same suspect or suspects is because of the fact that um, all these women were murdered in the same similar ways. Uh, they had a similar type of profession. They were all involved in prostitution. And it occurred within a narrow time span, so it would make sense that uh, we're able to make the connections here uh, before we start to see lapses in time uh, when, when people start to throw in that there were more than five victims. So during the criminal case, just to give you a little bit of background of the investigation itself, there were over 2,000 people interviewed by police. Uh, over 300 people were individually investigated, and 80 people were detained as part of the investigation. Now, the suspect in question um, that naming Jack the Ripper book discuss is Aaron Kamoski. He was a Jewish-Polish immigrant. He was age 23 at the time of the murders. He was actually listed as one of the 300 people being investigated for the Whitechapel murders. So much so that in documentation uh, belonging to Chief Inspector Donald Swanson, who was responsible, who led the investigation, he wrote the name Kamalski, handwritten um, inside the uh, mor margin of actual uh, historic documentation. So, to give you a little bit of background, uh, Kamalski, during him being investigated by the police, he was watched uh, until he was forcefully committed for paranoid schizophrenia in 1891. This was exactly three years after the last... Uh, five murders in respect to Mary Jane Kelly, okay? 
we know that according to documents, Kamaski, the suspect, had been ill since 1885. Um, he was suffering from pronounced auditory hallucinations. Uh, he had a paranoid fear of being fed by strangers. Um, <clears throat> he refused to to wash or bathe themselves, and he was uh, documented to be a chronic masturbator in public. Now, um, he died at the age of 53 in March 1919. The reason why Kamalski was considered a person of interest in the uh, original Jack the Ripper investigation was because he lived in the area of the crimes uh, where they were committed, and he was not actually institutionalized during the time of the initial five murders. Um, according to investigators at the time, he had a great hatred for women, um, overlapped with potential homicide tendencies, um, based on the interviews that they conducted with him. Uh, there is also the argument that, uh, potentially Jack the Ripper was Jewish, uh, and Kamaski was. Uh, Catherine Eddowes, uh, one of the victims, she lived 200 yards away from, uh, Mr. Kamoski's home uh, prior to her murder, and um, there were some unconfirmed accusations that a witness potentially identified Kamoski as being seen with one of the victims prior to their murder. Um, he also lived in close proximity to all the murders, but it was a highly densely populated area, so we need to take that with a little bit of grain of salt in respect to that. So why is his name, how has his name come up recently uh, with recent news? Um, that is, it's all centered around this book, uh, Naming Jack the Ripper, uh, and it centers around a 126-year-old Shaw. Okay, that was supposedly um, <clears throat> recovered at one of the crime scenes. Uh, the crime scene in question was Catherine Eddowes, uh, one of the victims, the shawl was supposedly recovered by a police officer at the scene, and he brought it home, and he gave it to his wife as a gift. Now, I know that this is romantic, but moving forward, um, what we need to note about this shawl in question is that there is no record at all um, of it being in, located or described in the crime scene log or any shawl being listed as being around the body or near the body of Edo's. Um, another interesting point is when we look at documentation, uh, the said individual, the police officer in question, uh, was not documented to actually have responded to, to, to Eddowes' crime scene. Now, um, how this came about is that the police officer's wife, Markably, was horrified, uh, that she was given a shawl that had some blood on it, um, according to the Guardian, and she placed it in a box, and it was passed down from generation to generation for 119 years. And it wasn't until seven years ago, actually 10 years ago, when um, the officer's wife decided to get rid of it and put it up for, a uh, descendants of the, of the wife decided to put it up for auction. This is where armchair detective, and he self-proclaimed himself as such, Russell Edwards, uh, purchased uh, said shawl, and um, he's the author of the book um, in respect to that. And he sent the shawl to a molecular biologist at uh, LJMU to be analyzed. 
<clears throat> semen was found on the shawl, and uh, the molecular biologist tested the semen for mitochondrial DNA um, in respect to it. Now, just to let you know, mitochondrial DNA uh, was used to rule out Anna Anderson as being the Russian princess uh, Anastasia Romanoff. If you remember um, the story of the individual who was claiming that she was actually survived the assassination attempt, so they used um, that type of process. So what is mitochondrial DNA, and why is it relevant to this book, and why do we use it in cold cases? Well, mitochondrial t- uh, DNA, uh, or short, mtDNA, um, <clears throat> is a little bit different than what we know as conventional nuclear DNA. Uh, mtDNA contains genetic material only from a mother, Hence why any individual connected maternally can be used for source comparison. Now, if we quote the FBI uh, in respect to this, this is what they have to say. Since mtDNA is maternally inherited and multiple individuals can have the same mtDNA type, unique identifications are not possible using mtDNA analysis. However, mtDNA is an excellent technique to use for obtaining information in cases where nuclear DNA is not feasible. Now, uh, mtDNA contains low concentrations of degraded DNA. So that's why uh, it is not the preferred DNA analysis technique at crime scenes. Okay? But when we talk about historical investigations... um, Cases just like this one in question where, you know, over 100 years have passed by. Um, MTDNA testing is often used because it is found in hair shafts, bone, and teeth. Unlike nuclear DNA, the more traditional DNA when we think of DNA in criminal investigations, uh, because nuclear DNA degrades much quicker than MTDNA. So it makes sense for a biologist to actually um, examine if they were going to examine this evidence to use an mtDNA type of testing. Now, with that being said, before we can jump to conclusions in respect to the um, the shawl, there's some forensic cross contamination things we must consider. Okay, I just want to point these out, and you can take it for what it's worth. Number one, there is no recorded evidence of a shawl being found near, around, or within close proximity to the crime scene in question of Catherine Eddowes. There are obviously, number two, chain of custody issues. Uh, the shawl, if it was actually covered, recovered at the crime scene, has been handled by numerous people um, for the past more than 100, 130 years prior to mtDNA testing. So we're talking about there is a high chance of evidence contamination being a real probability in respect to this. It wasn't stored forensically properly um, because we really didn't have the foresight, obviously, it, it, for the show in question to, to, do, do, uh, to do mtDNA testing on it. Another question we need to consider is how degraded was the sample that the molecular biologist tested? Um, Molecular biologists can only test with what little they have, okay? It's up to investigators to use the scientific results as part of the criminal investigation when we talk about it. So uh, we can't really jump to conclusions just because we get a positive test on something, uh, a degraded sample. Now, 
another point of contention we need to consider is that uh, while the victim did live within 200 yards of the suspect, um, is it possible that an officer picked up a random shawl that Kamalski, uh, who had a tendency to publicly masturbate, might have dropped near the crime scene? Okay, so we have semen on the shawl, and we have uh, supposedly blood from Catherine Eddowes on the shawl. Now, um, would it be possible that uh, the suspect may have masturbated into the said shawl and the wind got a hold of it and it got into the crime scene? This is before we even dismissed the possibility of it even not being a probability of being located at the crime scene. Um, or maybe the shawl was picked up and used to wipe an officer's hand or shoe after leaving the crime scene, which may explain, explain why uh, Edo's blood was found on the shawl. It doesn't mean just because blood's on the shawl that it was actually at the crime scene. So we need to get away from that kind of um, thinking um, that, that it was actually at the scene. Um, notably at the time... When investigators responded to these scenes, they didn't understand evidence contamination. They didn't understand dangers of infectious disease like we do today. All right. All right. Another argument in this, Catherine Eddowes uh, was a known prostitute. Is it possible that Kamoski paid for her services and the shawl was either taken by her or given to her days prior to the murder during their encounter? This can explain why both Kamoski's semen and also her blood was located on it. Um, there's also questions about the methodology of this test that was used. Uh, there is no peer review actually of this analysis. This was an armchair, uh, detective who wrote this book, um, and was taking the scientific evidence that was presented to him as being true. But there's so many questions in respect to this. Uh, we don't know if Kamoski's relatives might, during these, this 130 plus years, might have touched the shawl or came into contact with the shawl prior to uh, the author of this book um, testing it. Um, how do we not know one of Kaminsky's uh, relatives might have potentially touched it after the purchase of the um, of the actual auction. So there's all kinds of questions about chain of custody uh, and things along that line in respect to this before we come to any conclusions. Now, it would be very exciting if we could say, we've got evidence, we know who it is, we can finally solve the Jack the Ripper case. But there are still too many questions, in particular when uh, talking about the book naming Jack the Ripper, that we have to consider. the Obviously, evidence contamination, chain of custody, um, and how this actually came into uh, the hands of the person who, who wrote this book uh, is even questionable, uh, buying it at auction. How many people actually touched it at the auction um, when we talk about it? So if we were to use this type of forensic evidence with today's standards, it would not pass the court of law. It would not pass. We would not be able to find uh, the suspect Kaminsky actually guilty. Um, when we talk about the case in general. Now, um, we might be able to, to, we wouldn't be able to secure an arrest warrant actually on the suspect based on this, uh, the concept of evidence contamination. So as such, I am extremely, extremely critical over uh, the Shawl's authenticity. 
um, and how it potentially um, could have come into play. I, I know some historical cases in the past, um, when cases were quite popular, you'd hear stories of individuals walking up to um, crime scenes and actually soaking the corner of um, handkerchiefs in, uh, in blood of the deceased as a souvenir in a major crime scene. So uh, is that what we're dealing with with the shawl? Um, so there's so many questions that are still surrounding it. So one of the things I just want to stress when we talk about using forensic evidence is it's always uh, going to be circumstantial. It's up to the actual investigators to piece together the pieces uh, to actually solve the case. Well, that's going to be it. It's a longer podcast for today. Um, so please stay tuned for next week, and we're going to be discussing uh, more criminal cases. I hope you have a great day. Thanks.